So we are beginning a new uh, series uh, for the next up until the summer where we're going to walk through the book of 1 John. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 John. If you uh, don't have a Bible, um, I should have mentioned that you could grab one of those back in that back corner or back here. Feel free to do that now if you'd like. Um, You also can grab one. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please grab one of those and take that with you. That is a gift to you. Um, What you also can do is you may have noticed that out front there are little scripture journals. And so we've been doing this lately, the last couple of times, I think, when we preached through a book of the Bible, we have um, had these little scripture journals. And so all it is is just, it is the scriptures, and then it is a whole bunch of space to write notes. And um, so we found a lot of people have really enjoyed having those as we preached through a book of the Bible. Um, One of the ideas is that you can take sermon notes in there, you can take journaling notes, thoughts, whatever you have in there. And then um, one of the great things about it, one of the things that we've thought about before is like you can have like a collection of those. And so then as you are sharing the gospel or as you're discipling somebody and you want to walk through, um, you know, so many times people say like, hey, do you have any suggestions of, you know, what to take somebody through? I have a new believer or I have someone who's seeking. What should I do? And, And my first thought is always take them through the Bible. And I know that that can be scary and overwhelming, but our thought is, like, if you can have, you know, a collection like this, then you can feel confident to take them through and remind yourself of the things that God taught you as we walk through the scriptures together. And so um, those are out at at the welcome desk, just right outside here behind the tech booth. Um, those are $3. That's what we um, paid for them. So we're just asking for that. If you can't afford that, then don't worry about it. Um, tell them to put it on my tab. And so they will, they'll let you go. And just grab one. And, um, and then if, you, if, if that's something, like if we find that that's a case that we have uh, you know, a lot of people that can't you know, afford them, then uh, we, we'll just take care of that and supplement that. Um, but you, know, you can always get one for somebody. Like if you know, like you've been bringing somebody to church, um, that's another great thing. If you've been inviting someone to church, pick one of those up for them and give it to them and say, hey, we're going through the book of 1 John. I know I've talked to you a bunch of times about coming to church with me. This might be a really great time. And here, I I got this for you. Um, It's a journal. Um, Why don't you come and join me and let's go through this together. Um, That would be an incredible thing that I would be super excited about. Um, All right. So 1 John, let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we begin the study of this incredible letter. God, remind us of what it means that you are light and in you there is no darkness at all. That you are the source of all good things. God, help us to meditate on that incredible truth. Help us to do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look in 1 John at the beginning, you'll see some parallels, by the way. So the author is the same as the Gospel of John, and so there are a lot of parallels um, between uh, the first chapter of 1 John and the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Um, You'll also find, as we go through this, that there are a lot of parallels between the letter of 1 John and what we talked about um, before Easter of John 15 through 17. So there's going to be a lot of parallels and a lot of, um, a lot of themes that go together. And so at the beginning of 1 John 1, he says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. 
and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John is beginning this, his little letter with the purpose of why, he, why he's writing it. He's, John is interesting because he's, his writing tends to be very like circular. Like he'll go kind of around in circles. He'll, he'll take several passes at things and go around on these laps. And, and that sometimes gets him the reputation of being um, more poetic or more rambling or whatever the case is. Where you're like, well, didn't you just say that? And that's his style. Um, as opposed to Paul, who tends to be much more like argument-oriented. And so John has that reputation. But what's interesting is John also has the reputation of being very clear about why he's writing what he's writing. It may be kind of in a poetic way, but he's being very clear. Usually at the beginning and at the end, in, in the Gospel of John at the end, he tells us, this is why I wrote all these things. This is why I chose what I chose. He even kind of explains why, like why you may have noticed, hey, there were some things I probably left out. That's okay. I couldn't have written all of them. There's no way. But I, this, is, this was my purpose in writing. And here he gives his purpose. He's telling them about this Jesus, that God, the, the, that God has made his, the word of life manifest. And, Jesus, and John is saying, and we testify that this Jesus actually lived. This is what happened. He's saying, look, God created all things in the beginning, and and then he became flesh and and walked among us, the word of life among us. And this message that you've heard, we've seen it. We are testifying to you that this is not something that we just heard about or something that we thought maybe sounded good or sounded like a good idea, but rather this is something that we saw with our own eyes and touched with our own hands. And you think about it, um, the reason why this is so important is this was written, um, we think, probably in the late 80s AD. Like somewhere between 85 and 90 AD. So around 60-some years, you know, probably around 60 years after, 55 to 60 years after Jesus lived and died and was resurrected. So think about that. That would be like right now, things that happened in the mid-1960s. And talking about that. So it'd be like me gathering my children around and say, children, gather, gather around me and let us talk about a historical time, a time when the most dominant team in the NFL were the Green Bay Packers. And they all go, what? Yes, it's true, children, believe me. There was a time when Lambeau Field was the most feared place to play a football game, where they were the most dominant team. And they'd say, no. I'd say, yes. And they'd say, Dad, did you see it? I would say, no. (laughs) So long before my time, children. Now, for many of you, though, you know, for most of us, I think, actually, in this room, as I'm looking around, I would say that most of us probably would say, yeah, I don't tangibly remember that. Like, even if you were born, you, maybe you're a baby or whatever, but you'd say, like, I never saw it, but I've heard it. If you grew up in this area, I'm sure that if you had a, a mom or a dad who was a big Packers fan, you heard all the stories. And the interesting thing is it would be like them saying, like, we, we, we saw it. 
We felt it. We went to a game at Lambeau Field. Like I remember not too long ago talking to someone who went to the Ice Bowl. If you don't know what that is, I'm sorry. It's, it's amazing. But they went to it. They, they were there cheering with people. They, they felt it. They saw it. And so they, they knew better. And they, they, would, they could tell those stories. And it's so different than my secondhand version watching old clips on ESPN. And that's what John is saying to them. Look, you've, you've heard about this Jesus, but he knows that the people he's writing to didn't see it. That maybe there are a few of them scattered who still remembered what it was like when Jesus actually walked the earth. But John remembers. And he is very adamant that this is not just an idea It's not some spiritual philosophy from some guru who walked around and taught some really incredible things. He's saying, no, this Jesus was God incarnate. And he lived this life. And he died a real death. And he rose again. And his motivation, he he tells them why it's so important. Because So that they would have fellowship with him. So that you too may have fellowship with us. He's saying as we fellowship with the Father through this Jesus, we want you to share in that fellowship. He says something interesting. So that our joy may be complete. So whatever this message is, this thing that he saw and witnessed and testified and is now testifying to, he's saying that like as long as I'm on this earth, as long as I have breath in my lungs, I'm going to declare this message. So his joy may be complete. There's something about sharing this message that does bring about a completeness of joy. It's one thing to experience the love of Christ. But any of you who have shared the gospel and seen God save someone and see them transform in front of your very eyes, you could testify to the completeness of joy that comes from that, the beauty of that. Like one of the great realizations of my life was when evangelism, sharing the gospel, stopped being scary and started just being a joyful thing. Like I remember crossing over from, when, from being afraid of what am I going to say and, and the guilt of I guess I should probably do that and, and to, to finally getting to a place where I was like, God, let me do it again. Let me experience that again. And realizing that as far as God saving people, that my perspective on how he does that and when he does that was just so, was so off. Look, I'm, you probably know this about me. If you've known me for very long, you know that I am not a great outdoorsman. Okay? I'm not a good fisherman. I, I do own a fishing pole but I would not be able to use it right now because it's so tangled up and I wouldn't know what to do with it or how to, how to deal with it, okay? And so for so long, like, like I only knew fishing as the only thing I had experienced, which was standing on a shore, tossing out a line, and knowing full well that nothing was going to happen. That's not fun. 
Right? That wasn't enjoyable for me. I, I didn't have fun doing that. And so, but since moving here, I've learned there's a different kind of fishing. There's a kind of fishing where you actually go out and you cast a line and you expect to catch something. That's way more fun. I remember going out on, on Lake Superior with Gary Johnson for the first time and him saying to me, me saying like, hey, do you think we'll catch fish? And he looked at me like, what is wrong with you? Why else are we going out here? And he said, well, yeah, we'll catch our limit. And I was like, wait, what? You have to put a limit on these things? Like my limit was, you didn't have to put a limit on me because it would be zero. That would be how many I would catch. But we go out there and sure enough, it was, it was, we caught fish. And that was so foreign to me. Like here's the thing. When Gary took me out there on Lake Superior, he didn't know which fish he was going to catch. He didn't set his sights on like, okay, here's the one fish and it's going to be over here. I got to find, I got to go all over Lake Superior to find this. That wasn't the thought. The thought is he knew he was going to catch fish because he's like, there's so many out there. It's not a question of if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to make you fishers of men, he's not talking to fishermen like I'm a fisherman. He's not talking to bad hobbyists. He's talking to men who cast out nets and routinely haul in boatloads of fish. That's their picture of fishing. And I think so often with the gospel, we act as though we are bad hobby fishermen. We think that it depends on the type of lure and that we're looking for this particular fish in the middle of this giant lake or this giant ocean. And we got to, like, what are the odds that we're going to actually go out there and, and find this fish? But the reality is that the gospel is a net. And God says the harvest is plentiful. You see that in Luke 10. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The, the problem isn't the number of people that God is saving. It's that we don't have enough people who love to fish and see it as a joy. And so John is saying to them, this is the net. I'm casting it out. I'm writing this so that you will know. And so, so that you will have fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ who really lived and really died and really rose again. And that we would have fellowship with one another. And it is great joy to share that and to know that people would come to a saving knowledge of him. It is our great joy to share the message. So what is the message? Well, again, he's very clear. He states it. Verse 5. This is the message. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That doesn't exactly sound like the Romans road, does it? This is where Paul or John gets a little poetic in these things. He's saying, like, God is like, here's the message. 
that I'm proclaiming to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then he's going to say, and we have fellowship with him through the Son who forgives us for our sins, and thus we have fellowship with one another. Like, this is, this is the message, but he starts with this. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. That means that God, what do we mean when we say God is light? We mean all knowledge and wisdom and goodness come from him. He is the source of all those things. He is good. He is holy. He is not described by those things. He is those things. He is the definition of goodness. He is the definition of holiness. This is really important. Okay, that protects us from just looking at the Bible and saying, oh, well, these are godly things, and so I attribute them to God, rather than seeing, no, God is the source of all those things, and that's why we have the gift of his word. His word is a revelation of who he is. It's not an arbitrary textbook that happens to describe God. It flows from God. And we'll see why that's important, that distinction. But that's what's meant by he is light. He is the source of light. And it's manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Right, so when we preach through Colossians, Colossians 2.3 says, in, in Jesus Christ, in whom all are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the light of the world. There's no darkness in him. And that's what he says. He says, there's, there's no darkness in God. He is the source of light. He is light. So therefore, there's no darkness to him. It means there's no evil. Like we, we sometimes compare him then like to the difference between the sun and the moon, right? So the sun is the source of light, but the moon is just a reflection. Like when the moon lights up at night, the moon is not lighting up. It is only reflecting the light from the sun. And there are no dark sides to the sun. There's no darkness there. Because it's just light from every angle, from every direction. And that's who God is. There's, there's no evil in God. There's no partiality in God. There's no compromise in God. God doesn't have to work within realms of something outside of himself. And yeah, he had to do this thing over here, but he didn't really want to. And so, but he had to because, you know, he had to work this good thing out of it. And so, you know, he dealt with it or he's working in the confines of this or he's dependent on us or any of those things. God isn't any. There's no darkness in him at all. John the Gospel of John, chapter 1, he says, In him was life, and Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So not only is there no darkness in God, but darkness cannot impede God. Meaning that there can't be any darkness around God that somehow diminishes his light. His light consumes all darkness. That means there's no situation, no circumstance that you could ever walk through where God would say, ah, I would love to help you through this, but this is, this is even too dark for me. Which means we can fully trust him. We can trust his goodness. We can trust his sovereignty. He never means anything but good for us. He never, he never lacks power in the face of evil. 
There's not a battle going on that's somehow this equal battle. It is just God in his sovereignty seeing things play out. He's the source of all light. He is sovereign over all things. And I admit that that gets challenging, but that's a, that's a different sermon for a different time. And James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's what we mean by light. He is, he is unchangeable. He is perfectly good and perfectly holy and perfectly sovereign. He is the definition of all those things. And there is never any darkness in him. That's what John wants them to know. But we tend to get lured away. We tend to, to say that. We say that in our minds. We know that, yes, God is light. But there is a danger, and there has always been a danger. It's been the same thing that has always been the danger. It's this, it's this continued narrative that we read about all through Scripture. And we read about these people, the people of God, and how they see that God is light, and they follow him, and they dev- are devoted to him. And then they wander away. And we say, well, what fools? Why would they wander away? And then they, they come back, and then they wander away again. And we we always watch that, we read that, and we think, how foolish. I would be the one that would stand with him no matter what. But that is foolish. We are wanderers. And the way we wander in this is though we know that God is light, that is big and scary and overwhelming, and so we often look for other, more manageable lights. We try to make other things, created things. We, we look at things that we can handle more easily and control and manipulate because it just makes us feel safer. And we start to see those things as light. It's, a, it's the same thing that happened in the garden. Right? So the central theme is that God is light. In him there's no darkness. From the beginning, the enemy has sought to distract and lead astray God's people by twisting the truth. It's not that the danger isn't that, okay, we know God is light, so avoid the darkness. Our problem, what we get lured by, is not just like pure darkness. Nobody like wakes up one day, like you've been worshiping Jesus and everything, and then the next day you wake up and you're like, you know what, I think I'm going to try the Satan guy for a while. I think I'm just going to go on like this crime spree and just like cause as much harm and havoc on everybody around me as possible. It's far more subtle. Like the lie in the garden wasn't, don't worship God, he's the worst. Worship me. That's not what the serpent says. He twists God's words. He says, you know what, if this, this is good, but like, wouldn't this be better? And just shifts a little bit. Yeah, there's, God is light, sure. But there are other good things. And we start to take these things that God has given us as gifts that are created things like hobbies or family or education or social justice or political influence or service of our country or the protecting of our rights. And we take these things that were meant as gifts from God and may there are parts of them that reflect the light of God. And we say, ah, this is more controllable and manageable. I'm going to make this the light. And we say, like, well, is that really that big of a deal? 
Well, the problem is that all those things are created. And much like the sun and the moon, it would be wrong for us to look at the moon and say, ah, oh, the moon is what lights my path. Rather than looking at the moon being lit up and say, ah, oh, that is beautiful. But it is only beautiful because it is reflecting the light of the sun. Because what we know is that in the moon, there are also dark sides. The sides that are not pointed to the sun are not light. They are dark. And if we get confused and lured over here, we say, oh, look how beautiful the moon is. Then we see it as light. And then we start to look around and someone says like, well, hey, but there's, there's dark side to this moon. And we say, no, there's not. That's my light. And what happens is unknowingly, I take these things that were meant to be good things and I make them ultimate things. And Tim Keller says that is what idolatry is. When we take good things and make them ultimate things. And so now this thing that was meant to just be a reflection of the light becomes, in my mind, the source of light, which means it becomes a god to me. It becomes an idol. And we defend our idols at all costs, even if it means defending darkness. And all of us do this. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is an idle factory. We can't help ourselves. It just produces it. We're drawn to them. We're drawn to these idols because they meet more immediate desires. They're more manageable. They, they seem measurable. They seem more controlled. I can shape them the way that I want. And, and this is what the world does. The world has no choice because they do not know God they know of God, but they don't know him, and so therefore they make gods for themselves. And then they defend them, whether it's political correctness or personal freedom or whatever it is. Like, by the way, this is why we have so many agnostics in our culture. We have far more agnostics than we have atheists. And agnostic believes there's something out there, they just don't know what it is. Whereas an atheist says, no, there's nothing else out there. But most people in our country are not atheists. If they don't believe in, in God, they, they, they're, they're really agnostic. They believe there's something out there, fate or some spiritual power or whatever. And there are Christian-flavored agnostics, and there are atheist-flavored agnostics, but they're, they're agnostic. Because the tempting thing about being an agnostic is when I need someone higher up on the food chain to blame, I got them. I can blame fate, I can blame circumstances, I can blame the universe. Like, that's something outside of my control. You can't blame me for this, hold me accountable for this. I got somebody to blame. But when I want to be in control, I can be in control. It's so tempting. And we see playing out what Paul talks about in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So part of what Paul is saying here is we've got the light over here. And we know because we know that God is the only source of light. 
but our hearts are drawn to make idols and things that we can control and we get lured over here and there's sides of this thing over here that reflect the light and so it is beautiful, it looks beautiful, it looks good. But we don't realize that it's only good to the extent that it's reflecting the true light. And we get, become so enamored with this thing that we, we make it, we craft it into our idol and we pretty soon we give up the creator for the creation because it's just so much easier. And we're really good at reading Romans 1 like this and thinking of other people, right? Like We're really good at that. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at that. I can come up with a hundred ways that people I disagree with are falling into this trap. Like one of the ones, I'll just give you one because it's fun, right? So one of the ones is, um, is the worship of the idol of science. Science is a gift from God, right? The God is a God of order, not of chaos, How incredible is it that our God created a universe down to such a detail that we could see things that are reproducible, that we can see that a flower grows. You know when your flowers are going to grow up. Um, What am I saying? I don't even know gardening. What are the plants that grow every year at the same time? Perennials. Thank you. I'll remember that for second service. So they're perennials, right? Like how many of you know when your perennials are going to like sprout up? Right? Like you, and you get excited for it, and you wait for it, and you know, and it's like, it's going to happen again and again. That's because God created it that way. And it's beautiful, and studying that is amazing, and it can, it can be a worshipful thing, and it's beautiful, but, but then all those sides that are reflecting light then become an idol when we say, okay, the only thing we can know is what we can observe. The only thing, the only way, the only truth that we really have is what I can see or taste or smell. And I really believe that all of creation from the beginning of time is somehow able to be shrunk down to what I can understand and see and observe for myself. And it becomes an idol. And then what's interesting is what we've seen in it is that it can't be an idol because it's not the source of light. It's the observation of the light. And so we see how people can say they are people of science on this side and be like, oh yeah, look at, look at all creation. Look at how this develops. Look at what we can see and measure and all this stuff. And then you get around to the dark side and say, ah, but this, this doesn't fit. And so I'm going to manipulate this. And so we have people who are saying, I am for science, completely denying biology. Just saying, oh yeah, no, but not that. And we can see how that idol becomes, you start defending darkness and causing havoc and confusion and pain. But just like in the garden, the most dangerous idols are the ones that look the closest to God. The Pharisees made a light of the law. And Jesus says, you study that. You're so fixated on that that you are missing the source of light. You're missing the light of the world. He says, you're missing me. They made him an idol out of this law. And the law was beautiful. Paul says the law is good. It, it reflects the light of God and reflects on the darkness of our heart and shines in there. And for that purpose, it's beautiful, but it makes a terrible God. 
And we do that. We have our modern day versions when we make biblical knowledge an idol. Studying the Bible is beautiful. Understanding God's word is beautiful. It is meant to reflect the light of Jesus. It is not a God in and of itself. And when we start to worship it as a God in and of itself, we start to pick apart things. And that's when we can start to believe that I am defending God's word, though I am walking completely in contrast to Jesus. Do you see how that plays out? It's it's dangerous. We do it in in other ways. We do it like, uh, let me give you a, a, a different practical example. Just providing for your family. Like we know it's a good thing to provide for your family, to make sure that they're clothed and have food and have shelter. But any of you that have gone down this road know that, that, that there are dark sides to providing for my family. Because what, what am I providing for my family? Do I see it as, as money? And so therefore I, I always take overtime shifts and hours because I think I'm providing a better future and meanwhile neglecting my children or neglecting my spouse? Do I start to become so wrapped up in that, that that my identity is in how many hours I work, how hard I work, how much money I earn, how many toys I can buy with it? Do I start to pursue um, experiences for my kids and feeling like they've got to have all the opportunities and all the chances and so they need to be in all the activities and do all the things, otherwise they're going to fall behind? And pretty soon my life becomes reoriented around this thing that was just meant to be a reflection of the light. There's so many areas that we can do this in. I got in trouble um, many weeks ago when I mentioned being pro-life. I didn't get in trouble from people who are pro, um, that are pro-choice. I got in trouble from people who are pro-life because I was talking about pro-life as being pro-life as one of those idols. That we look at the pro-life movement and we say, well, that, no, that's light. That is good. There is no darkness in the pro-life movement. Yes, there is. Like, look, I am as pro-life as you can get. I'm not saying that you're not as pro-life as me. I'm just saying, like, wherever that extreme is, like when I have friends who lay out, they're like, where do you fall on the, on the, on the spectrum? There's a spectrum of pro-life. Whichever, I'm nervous to even pick a direction. Let's go forward and back. I'm going to say, out there, that's where I am. As far out there as you can get, believing that this life is created by God in the image of God and deserves to have a voice and to be protected and guarded. Not at the expense of the mother or of anything else, but but I will guard and speak up for this child and protect them. But there are things that I stand against in the pro-life movement. There's darkness. There's shaming of terrified non-Christians who only know what the culture is telling them. There's intimidation that happens of them. There are politicians who say that they are for that but actually don't care at all. See, it's not so simple. Like As long as to the extent that it's reflecting the light of God, that God says, that is my image bearer. I knitted that child together in the mother's womb. Like They belong to me. 
As long as we are looking at it in that light and saying, yes, God is light, and so this is how he shines on this, then we are walking in the light. But as soon as we say, okay, got it, God, and now this thing becomes light, I start defending darkness and say, well, yeah, I know that it probably isn't normally good to be screaming and, and swearing at and screaming and throwing things at a terrified 18-year-old girl, but, you know, pro-life, no, is darkness. There are so many things that are even more complicated issues, whether you're talking about caring for the poor or, or any, like, how do we deal with refugees and how do we deal? Like, these are all complex things. And our hope is in staying and walking in the light and seeing how the light is reflecting on them rather than trying to make these things light. Because when we make these things light, we find ourselves creating an idol and defending it and we end up calling darkness light. And that is what Isaiah warns us of when he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Do you you see that last part there, how critical that is? We don't call evil good because we've made a conscious decision to side with evil. In my life, when I have found myself calling evil good, it's because I thought it was good. I relied on my own reasoning. I became shrewd in my own sight, wise in my own eyes. When we do this, we're not not Darth Vader making a choice of, I'm going to go over to the dark side on this. We're fooled by our own reason. We're fooled by the reflection, not realizing how far we've wandered away and been orbiting around the moon, calling it the sun. Now you may say, like, okay, well then how do we handle that? Because there are things that are more dark than other things, there are things that are more light. Like, like you know, when we talk about voting, like how do we how do we handle that? How do we handle politics then? How do we handle like our neighbors and the situations where we say, like, I want I want to love these people, but I also don't I don't want to teach my, my children that this is how we are called to live. Like I, I, I'm wrestling with these things. Well, that's where fellowship becomes so critical. Look at verse six in first John. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's the warning. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this is what happens. This is why I think we fall into these traps is because I I start to be lured away and I'm like, okay, I see the light that's reflected And then I start to orbit my life around that. And guess what? I'm surrounded by people who are also orbiting around the same idol. And now that's all I hear. And now all of a sudden I'm saying like, ah, well, this seems a little dark, but I think that this is good. And then I got somebody next to me being like, no, this is good. Well, this is why this isn't really dark. And this is why the dark thing on that idol over there is worse than this dark thing. And so this is actually not that dark. It's actually kind of light. It's really just a shade of light. And we're like, ah, that sounds pretty good. I think that makes a lot of sense. And we just go deeper and deeper. Because our fellowship is not in the light. Our fellowship is around this reflection 
And when we struggle to defend and justify things in our own eyes, in our own sight, we look to others to vindicate us. It's why we don't read full articles, we just read headlines and then share them. Have you ever shared an article that you didn't actually read? Because the headline and the first thing said, like, you're like, ah, that's from my point of view. You're not alone. But that's how that happens. And our fellowship starts to become around. And then as our fellowship forms around them, we start to see them as our brothers and sisters. We start to see them as the most reasonable people and the people that we have the most in common with. And John says, no, our fellowship is with the light and with those who are in the light. And so we get in this place where we start to see people in our own country as more of a brother or sister than a Christ follower in Bangladesh. Or we start to see the person that we hold a similar political view with as, as more reasonable and, and more clear thinking than my brother or sister that holds a different political view but sees Jesus as king. We start to see, um, even in things that are less like serious, and that we start to see people that, that we enjoy hobbies with as more valuable fellowship than a person that I can talk to about Jesus and share my struggles in following him. Because where my true fellowship is, that's where my identity is. That's where my worship goes. And so John is saying, like, when you are in the light, when you're walking in the light, you have fellowship with God through Jesus and with one another. That if we would walk in the light, then we would have fellowship in the light. When we are walking over here, we're going to walk around and we're going to walk in darkness. And the truth is not in us. But, but in verse 7 he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Because Jesus is the manifestation of the light. In him there is no darkness. He is the light of the world. Every action of Jesus is in the light. Every word of Jesus is in the light. Every thought of Jesus, every interaction of Jesus is the light. If you want to be in the light, walk in him. Are you hearing the ringing of John 15 through 17? Abide in him. Not in a worldview, not in an ideology, not in a philosophy, but in him. And then let those things be reflections of that light and participate in them and call good things good and call evil things evil. And as you do that, know that the world will criticize you because they will say you are flip-flopping or they will say that you aren't firm enough in this or they will say that you're too soft over here. Whatever the case is, if you would walk in the light, you'd have fellowship in the light because in him there is no darkness at all. So don't don't just be pro-life. Be pro-life as Jesus is with his demeanor, his heart, his mind, his values. Don't just value providing for your family. Do so as Jesus provides for his family, with his demeanor, with his heart, with his mind. Don't just value social justice and the caring for the poor or for racial, uh, for racial reconciliation. Don't, don't just value that, but do so as Jesus did, as he loved people at the ground level and had compassion and listened and pointed to something greater. If we are walking in the light, we have fellowship with the Son and with one another. So let's find our fellowship there. 
That will keep you tethered as you walk this earth. It will allow you to be drawn to the light in different worldviews. Different things that you think, how is it possible that a Christian thinks that? Well, ask them. If they are truly submitted to Jesus as Lord and to Scripture as the authority, ask them. And here, and you may see beautiful light that is reflected in there. And you may navigate that differently as you walk this world, and that's fine. But we'll be drawn to that fellowship. So our fellowship is our those around the light. And so then when somebody says, yeah, I think this is how we should care for the poor. And you're like, ah, that's interesting. I don't know. This is what I'm concerned about. I think this. But we are in fellowship around the light so we can have those conversations and pull that out. And that will declare and demonstrate the gospel as the people sees as the world sees a people being formed that have nothing else in common but this light. Remember, that was the great testimony of the early church. And is what Peter draws on. He says, you are, a, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And no, that doesn't mean a race, meaning ethnicity. It doesn't mean priesthood, meaning religion. And it doesn't mean a holy nation, meaning our country. It means God's people, a people for his own possession from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see the parallels? You're walking in the light. You have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses you of sin. That is our calling, and that message is what we share. We are calling people out of darkness into marvelous light. Not out of a darkness of a worldview and into another man-made worldview or a man-made solution. And then as we come together, different classes, different ethnicities, different upbringings, different education levels, different experiences, we're formed together as brothers and sisters around the light of the world. And then we become a city on a hill, a light for the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that you are light, that in you there is no darkness at all. God, there is darkness in me. There is darkness in everything that we touch or that we involved in. God, that's why we are not the hope of the world. Not as people, not as human beings, but sanctified and bought back and redeemed and adopted into your family as the body of Christ. You have sent us to be the light of the world as you were. So God, forgive us for making our idols. Forgive us, Father, for orbiting around the moon, for finding our fellowship around the creation rather than in the creator. God, shine your light on the dark parts of our hearts where we don't see it. God, give us true fellowship in the light. Help us to discern what that looks like. Because, Father, I believe that we, we want to walk in the light. 
We want to walk in the light as you are in the light. Please help us to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.